Hey folks, welcome back to On The Mic with Mike Peters. This is episode number 52, which means I made it a year. You made it a year. Holy shit, you're not sick of me yet. Maybe. I've got big news. I started a Patreon page because, well, I figured it was time. So to celebrate, I decided to put on a comedy series. It's called On The Zoom Comedy Shows. Creative, huh? You know, On The Mic with Mike Peters, On The Zoom Comedy Shows. I'm pretty good. And, uh... Really, that's the only thing that I could think of. So basically, default. Hooray. The shows are going to take place every other Saturday beginning November 7th. Tickets are $5, and every show will feature three different comedians with me as the host. You can get tickets online at Eventbrite or go through the Facebook event page. Now, each show is $5, but if you join the Patreon, which is $5 a month, you get both shows essentially for free. Plus, if you miss a show, it'll be streaming on the Patreon page, so you can listen to it anytime you want. The first lineup features Bill Russell, Chris William, and Ellen Doyle. You've heard them all on the podcast before. Now you can hear their material. Trust me, it's worth it. You can get all the information for the Patreon page in the bio for this episode, or you just go to patreon.com and search On the Mic with Mike Peters and sign up. And trust me, if you don't sign up, it's not a big deal. I'm used to being ignored. I'm the third of four kids. And I'm not even convinced my parents know my name. Welcome to my life. On to this week's episode. Joining me is the 54th comedian in 52 weeks, Jen Eden. She's a comedian in Los Angeles with an extensive acting background in improv training. She's at UCB Theater now doing improv. And she spent years as a commercial actress and working off-Broadway in New York. She's also very musical. She knows 16 instruments. Well, we recorded this about a month ago, so I'm sure she's up to 19 now. But she's awesome. You guys are going to love her. Thank you so much for all the support over the last year. I'm excited to keep bringing you episodes. Thanks again. I'll talk to you guys next week. Take care. Peeling back my sunburnt skin. I'll wait outside your bedroom. I hope they let me in. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's uh, nice to see you again. It's nice to see you too. I'm really, really glad you asked me. I'm glad to be here. Well, it's funny. Like Part of the reason I like doing all these Zoom shows is that you get to meet people from all over the place. And Are you from LA? I know you're in LA now. Uh, I'm from Albuquerque, actually. And then I moved to New York City and then LA. A buddy of mine uh, uh, sold meth in Albuquerque. So uh, made it and he sold it. You might have met the guys. You know, I don't know. But uh, (laughs) I'll bet you I'll bet you anything. You're sick of hearing hearing about Breaking Bad. No, it's so funny. Actually, my parents, well, my grandmother got God rest her soul. She it was her favorite show ever. Really? Yeah, she loved it. And my parents like had she moved in with them and they had to get cable just so she could watch it. Because she loved it so much. Um, sadly, she only got to see season one, but she did love oh. it. I know. Like, she was robbed. But she loved it so much. And um, I, I tried to watch it once, and I'm like, oh, that person's being uh, burned alive by acid in a tub. I was like, I don't know if this is for me. But Yeah, it was that like, was like the second episode, third yeah, episode, something like that. I did try, and, and it's like masterfully made. It's so well written. The acting is incredible. But I was like, um... I will be like, ooh, the octopus car wash. I lived by there. <laughs> <laughs> so we were talking a couple nights ago, and uh, you just started stand-up over the pandemic? Yes, I did. That's so crazy. Because uh, like- one, one, I think you're very funny, and you seem like you've been on stage forever, and you have. I uh, but yeah, it's just, it's crazy. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I mean, full transparency, like I took a two hour workshop maybe six months before the pandemic and uh, with Judith Shelton. She's wonderful. And she was just like, you're ready for open mics. Go ahead and get out there. And I was like, oh, okay. And I did a couple of open mics and in person, like I did the fourth wall mic out here in LA. And um, I went, to, I did the Tao comedy studio. That was my first open mic ever. And it was all ladies, which was pretty cool. Uh, it was a great first place to like do that. And then I got a little discouraged when I went to some of the other mics. I was like, I don't really know what I'm doing. And I kind of put it to rest, like with barely any effort. I was just like, okay, back to improv, back to, you know, all the other things that I was doing. Uh, and then during the pandemic, I started taking standup. I was slated to take in person uh, with Lisa over at Pretty Funny Women. And we just kept waiting to be able to open up her studio week after week. And finally, she was like, do you ladies want to just try it on Zoom? And we were like, yes. And that's really where my journey started, like really started reading more. I was I've been reading the Comedy Bible by Judy Carter, which is amazing, breaks down jokes so well, so many great exercises. So kind of like in concert with just trying to start writing every day since January. I was like, just write every day, just 10 minutes. And then um, I took Lisa's class and met all these wonderful women. And it was just like, okay, let's do it. So I'm doing it. But you you did improv too, right? Like I've done a lot of improv, yes. Okay, okay. So how, how long have you been doing improv? Forever. Like since high school. And then like I was in doing short form in college and in New York, I guess I took a little break from improv and then I got deep into long form improv at UCB in New York. And then I moved to LA and like completed the program, got into like the academy level. And then I was on a house musical improv team here in LA, which was really fun. Does having that improv background make it easier to do stand up? You think? Yes. Yeah, I okay. do. Um, I'm really actually I had my first headlining gig last night, which I was like, super excited about. And I joked around on Zoom because I was like, you know, I just equate it to running with weights on at a high altitude. It's harder on Zoom to perform for people because you're always waiting and like, did they hear me? Did the cameras freeze? And sometimes, no, the cameras didn't freeze. It was just not funny. <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> the worst feeling ever. Well, I got to tell you. you know, I got to tell you, when you when you do it live and you get no response, that's an even worse feeling. Like, it's just like, oh, no, I know in real time you didn't like me at all. And there's no glitch behind it. You're like, ooh, I am. Uh, yeah, I am. I'm bombing right now. This is great. No, I, I feel really grateful for all of my like improv training and music training. And I was auditioning for Broadway for many years in New York. So I have, I'm used to getting told no a lot and getting shot down constantly. So I'm like, oh, how could I do that in a different way? Stand up. <laughs> yeah. So what got you into it? I mean, was it basically just another way to stretch yourself? Well, interestingly enough, people have told me I should do stand up for a very long time. And I'm always like, oh, I don't know. That sounds too scary. I don't think so. And I had a, I used to wait tables at Osteria Mozza, which is a very wonderful restaurant um, here in Hollywood in uh, Los Angeles. And I had one guest a few years ago who was some way, you know, connected in the comedy stand-up community. And he was just like, Jen, do you do comedy? And I was like, yes. And he's like, great. There needs to be more great female comedians. And he's like, where do you do stand-up or something? I was like, no, I do improv. And he was like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> he's like, you're, you're never going to get paid for doing improv. Uh, you should do stand-up. 
And I was just like, I don't know how, like, I don't even know where to start. And he was like, just go to open mics, trust me. And I, I had that little bee in my bonnet from like two years ago. And I'd been thinking about it. And just throughout my life, I'm a storyteller. I've done lots of one woman shows where I'm like playing instruments, singing and like telling my funny stories. And it was kind of like a weird thing when I started actually applying myself and studying over the pandemic. It was like, where you realize like, oh, the rule of threes joke. I've been doing these naturally all along. I didn't know I was actually telling jokes. So it's something I think that, I don't know, it's just in me and I'm so happy that I get to do it. It's really nice. I would think that improv is harder. Like I I would be afraid to do that. Oh, don't. It's so fun. Uh, The fun thing about improv, especially at UCB, is they really break it down for you. So it sounds daunting and scary. And then you take a 101 class and they're like, oh, do these rules. And then you're like, oh, I have these this rule book to follow. And then the deal with improv is you're on stage with probably at least three, four, if not seven other people that have your back all the time. So if you blank out and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do, somebody else is going to jump in and save you. That's the whole great thing about that. It's like a team sport. Everybody's like there to make the funny and to lift each other up and make each other look good. So for me, I was like, stand up, no instruments, no voice. I can't distract someone with like a song or just like tag out and let someone else. I'm like, oh, it's it would just be me and a microphone. That was like the scary part. But it's fun to realize that a lot of those other skills I have are are really helping my stand up. It's so nice. Yeah, I'll talk to musicians like like comedy musicians and like I, this one guy in Ithaca, Mike Brindisi. He liked to uh, tell jokes between songs. Like like he was a legitimate musician and would tell jokes. And I'm like, were you ever afraid that one of those jokes was going to bomb and totally ruin the momentum of the show? He goes, nope, because I can just go play a song after that. Because you just start and over. Love music. They do. So my challenge to myself is not to put any music in my set for a while. I just want to work on the jokes, just work on, you know, crafting that. And then maybe later what I've been doing, if I like host an open mic or like last night at my show, I did a solid 10 minutes. And then at the very end of the show, I was like, I'm going to improvise a song based on everyone's sets, which is just like fun for me. That reminds me of something like Dimitri Martin would do or Mike yeah. Birbiglia. I think it was what I should have said was nothing. I think he wrapped up his whole uh, hour long set in a song on his acoustic guitar. And I believe Amazing. that was the one. And I was like, I was like, oh, like, like, obviously you needed to watch the entire hour to get it. But, you know, if you just wanted to get the cliff notes, you could just watch the last two minutes. Exactly. So I, it was really fun for me, you know, to be just have that possibility. I mean, it sounds so crazy, but I'm like, Oh, is this okay to do? I'm like, mm, I want to try it. And people are like, wow. I'm like, well, this is the skill I've been working on a long time. The stand up thing is new. Yeah, that's such a that's such an interesting weapon to bring on stage with you. And uh, that's something that that I would be like, like, the reason I would do improv is just to sharpen that, that, you know, obviously the improvisational thing, but like for crowd work, I would think that's a natural component to it. It is. And it's, it's so nice to I, I never am scared to be in front of an audience. I know I can riff and kind of go with whatever happens. Um, I did a one-woman show in New York at uh, a place called 54 Below. It's in uh, Manhattan and used to be the old Studio 54. So I did a one-woman show there and I did like a bunch of characters and I played all these different instruments. And at one point, my mic went out. It just broke mid-show. And I was, uh, it was a handheld and I was uh, doing a character, one of my 
many characters, but I have this Russian character named Yelena and the mic went out and I was like, this mic not working, no problem. In Russia, we don't have mic. We yell. And then I just tossed the mic aside and <laughs> just talked <a> louder. <laughs> well, that's, that'll definitely suit you well on stand-up because I've, I've almost been part of no shows where everything's gone perfectly. Like something is going to be fucked up. So I'm really excited to see what it's going to be like live, you know, like not that Zoom isn't live, but on stage, real time, you know, I'm, I'm excited to experience that. I'm hoping to get, you know, I feel like we're having a few outdoor shows in LA, just start to quietly like drive in shows and stuff just quietly popping up. My guess is that for you, uh, you're getting reps in there. And that's why I kind of want to talk to you because uh, you're obviously very nice and funny, but it's just a different situation, like a scenario, because you're starting on Zoom. Most people are like reluctant to get into Zoom because it's not the same, but now you're kind of going out in the opposite direction. I think what's what you're going to find is that yeah, the gratification is more instant. Uh, so that's good. Uh, hopefully. I mean, I, I, it should be. Uh, but I think what you're going to find is that uh, you're going to find new friends and a new circle of just, you know, peers and coworkers. That's what I think you're going to take from that. Yeah, totally. I, I made a goal this week. I was like, I'm going to do five open mics. And it's so much fun. Every mic, I just wind up meeting incredible people, like just like when I met you, like I was just like, wow, this guy's really funny, super smart, talented. And I was so glad to meet you on that mic where we were like punching up each other's jokes, which I never experienced on a mic. Yeah. I thought that was so cool. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And like like uh, just in that one, we we do a mic on that's the Wednesday one. Uh, yeah. Jimmy Moynihan runs. And yeah, and right. just in that one, we've got comedians from New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Florida, L.A. Like they're all over the place. And for me. I like those because, and that's like the the bright spot for me with Zoom is that I get to see that we're not all that different. We have the same comedians from all over the place. Now we put them in there and yeah, like there's no ego really. Like, yeah, we'll punch up a joke or two because we're not going to see you once Zoom ends. It's like, you know, maybe, but uh, you know, there's no competition. It's just, we want to get everybody as, as good as possible. Yeah. I love that. I think that's just... I was um, chatting with Jimmy a little bit because um, Nico actually recommended me over to him because he was just like, oh, yeah, check out Jimmy's mic. I was like, OK, just looking for somewhere to get some reps in. And we chatted a little bit on Messenger about, you know, what the mic was and how, you know, people kind of like toss out punch ups for each other's jokes. I'm like, wow, that's so cool. He's like, yeah, it's really productive. And like you said, you know, being able to do comedy with people that are in New York and Florida and Pennsylvania, wherever, just all coming together. It's kind of cool. Like this week I did a mic with a bunch of people in Arizona and, you know, all, all over the place. And I was talking to my friend, Christelle De La Rosa, shout out comedy bestie. <laughs> um, we met over Zoom doing Lisa's class. Like we are going to cry when we meet each other in person because we <laughs> do so much comedy and hang out so much. We love each other. But she is the genius who was like, you know, we can go to open mics through Zoom that are based anywhere. She's like, it's kind of like going on the road. And I think that is so genius to see, you know, how your jokes hit in different parts of the country without going on the road. Yeah. And plus, it saves you a whole lot of gas. Yeah. A lot of gas and time. It's like, oh, I just click on and now I'm with a bunch of people based out of Arizona. Cool. Well, you mentioned the time and I started doing this podcast in like November or I was recorded in October. But what I would do is I would drive two and a half hours to Albany and record and then drive two and a half hours back. And I just didn't know, like I didn't know how to do it remotely. So when the pandemic hit, 
I was like, fuck, I got to figure out a way. Otherwise, I'm not going to do the podcast. So I got Zoom and, and you know, uh, another program and I was ready to go. And I was able to do two in a day with people from, you know, well, L.A. and Albany and Syracuse. And holy shit, I don't drive anymore. I have filled up my tank like three times in, in about six months. It's amazing. And I'm way ahead. Like, like I'm like 14 or 15 episodes ahead where I would never be had I had to drive. So it's, you know, like one of those weird perks of having to stay at home. Totally. Yeah. I, I, my car was collecting dust in the garage. I was never driving. It truly was. And so, you know, when it came time to turn, I had a, I had leased a car and I'm like, well, I don't think I'm getting a car. Okay. So I just turned in my lease and I live in um, a little area in LA called Glendale and I live right near everything. I can walk half a mile to Trader Joe's. I can walk half a mile to Whole Foods. Any groceries, any like anything close that I could really, really need, I can just pick up easily. I mean, my fiance has a car, so that's fine, but I don't even, I'm like, I'll just walk. I miss New York. Let's walk everywhere, except when the sky is burning. (laughs) What got you to New York in the first place? So New York, I graduated from college and I was like, I am going to do Broadway. (laughs) And I had the big Broadway dream, the big stars in the eyes. I'm like, I'm going to make it. No problem. Uh, I studied theater and I did like improv and acting. I did a degree in acting. And I like had started singing in college. But I was making a lot of headway and I got cast in a bunch of musicals and I was just taking a ton of voice lessons and I loved it. It came really naturally to me. Uh, and I was just like, okay, I maybe I'll try this. Because they're like, yeah, if you want to live in New York, you got to sing and dance. That's where the money's at. Ha 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 ha. That's how they get you. Oh, they got me good. And yeah, I became an intern at Broadway Dance Center and I took a ton of classes. So sadly, no avail. Still not a great dancer. <laughs> I tried. I uh, picked up, you know, I played three musical instruments. I learned how to play 13 more when I was teaching music for a bit. So I was just like, okay, I'm teaching, I'm doing dance at Broadway Dance Center, I'm taking voice lessons. I never took a break. You, you got to get up at four in the morning to audition and non-union in New York is brutal. You got to wait out on the street and get mistaken for a hooker, you know. Yeah, it happens to me all the time. This like, hey, sweetheart. You're like, I am auditioning. I'm dressed up for the audition. I did an open mic in New York City. And God, I, I think it's like a repressed memory. And it was New York Comedy Club. And there were two women there who were just dressed in a costume. And like, immediately, I was like, it's not Halloween yet. And that's how, how dumb I am. I'm like, no, they're they're coming from an audition or going to one. Like, I was like, oh, yeah, they're doing everything around there. But that's just kind of weird, like, like to go dressed up as something and then hit an open mic in your audition wear. It's like, it's strange to me still, but I completely get it. It's so funny. Yeah, you know, I feel like for theater, you're like, you got your heavy makeup on and you got your... For me, at least, it would be like a a sensible nude character heel, a one color dress. It just became like your audition uniform. But I loved it. I met so many amazing composers and musicians and just great, great people. I love the people in New York. I feel like my heart is still in New York City. But eventually, once I started getting more into comedy and doing like improv and stuff at UCB, and I started writing, I started, I don't know, I just had this idea for a sitcom. And I was like, well, dang, this is the most LA thing ever. I think I'm doing improv. I'm writing a pilot. And I talked to my manager at the time. And I was like, I think I want to move more into TV and film. And she's like, you can do TV in in New York. She's like, you know, there's 40 shows that are casting right now, 40 pilots. And I was like, Oh, that's a lot. Do you happen to know how many are in LA? And she said, Yeah, 180. Oh, I was like, I think my chances are going to be better on the West Coast. 
<laughs> yeah, a little bit. That's uh, four and a half times better. Exactly. And, you know, New York, I lived in Harlem. I lived in a teeny tiny two bedroom. I rented out one bedroom to, you know, strangers on Airbnb. And I worked a ton. I never slept. It was like, it's a grind. It's a grind, New York City. And so, you know, you come to LA and you're like, ooh, quality of life out here is looking good. (laughs) (laughs) How long were you in New York? uh, 12 and a half years. Oh, wow. Yeah, I still love it. I never thought I would leave until I had a friend getting married uh, in San Diego. And my manager was like, just pop up to LA and see what you think. And I came up to LA and I was like, oh, no darn it. This is wonderful. I was not expecting this. I was hoping as a New Yorker just to hate LA like I was taught to by way of never going just for no reason having hatred. I'm like, ugh, palm trees, yuck. They don't know what real art is. Well, I went to San Diego for a week and I never wanted to leave. And we got up to Anaheim. That's the closest we got to LA. And they're not, they're different towns. I understand. Oh, yeah. uh, but we wanted to get to LA and I swear like that's where I was going to move eventually. And I ended up moving back to Binghamton, which honestly is not like LA at all. I mean, not even close, uh, but I, I've never been there still. And I, I want to go desperately. Oh my gosh, Mike, you, I think you would enjoy it. it is, there's nothing not to enjoy. I know we're in pandemic times, so things are bizarre right now, but the comedy community, like the improv community has been so welcoming, so many awesome people. And then just even like through pretty funny women, getting to know all these awesome comedians and women and like flappers and doing shows at flappers and meeting all the awesome comedians over there. I'm like, wow, this community is so inclusive and kind. And then the weather is like 95% of the time amazing. And then you have fire season and you're like, ah, this sucks. But mostly it's beautiful weather. I just feel like there's so many opportunities here. And then you're like, hey, friend, should we film something? It's like, yeah, okay. And you just do each other's sketches or New York definitely has the collaborative vibe. But I feel like everyone's so burned out. And I couldn't couldn't speak to the stand-up scene there. I have a few friends doing stand-up there. I would love to do some open mics in person there, some, you know, post-apocalyptic time. I don't know what it's yeah, like, though. Yeah, um, I've only done a few, and like two years ago, maybe three years ago, and they were fun, but you got to know, you got to go in there knowing what to expect, because mm. you're only going to get like three and a half, four minutes. It might cost you three or four bucks to do it, and it's at a bar. Some of them are at a bar where nobody pays attention. There's usually like 20 people on the list, 25. So, I mean, if you know exactly what you're going to get, that's fine. But if you have expectations of it being this great thing, you're probably going to be let down. But mm-hmm. it's productive and it's it's a definitely a way you can get, you know, five, six, seven mics a day. That's amazing. Yeah, I did have um, I did see one open mic at the Prickly Pear in the West Village, which was kind of the vibe of it's just comics. Nobody's really listening. People are getting up doing their three to five minutes uh, supporting a friend. And I was like, OK. All right, Prickly Pear, I see you. I think that was the name of, of the place. Uh, right? Grizzly Pear, probably. Uh, Grizzly Pear, yes. I was like, Prickly Pear, that's yeah. Jungle Book, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, same thing. Doesn't matter. I'm like, you know, this is only like eight years ago, remind me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how long have you been in L.A.? Uh, three years. I just hit my three years. Does it feel like home? Sometimes. Yeah, it's weird. Um, there's like a lot of stuff to love about Los Angeles. And a lot of people I've met that I have connected with, I've been really lucky. Doors just feel like they open a lot easier here. Like I got commercial reps really quickly and I love them. I'm with NTA, shout out, woohoo. Yeah, I've just been lucky. Like they send me out and I book pretty consistently and I get, you know, put on a veil pretty consistently. And it's like, oh, wow. Like in New York, you kill yourself. 
to get, you know, in an off-Broadway show where they're like, and you're going to get two seventy five a week. Don't spend it everywhere. And you're like, okay, I'm just going to dip into the old savings to do this show every time. Uh, but LA is like a really magical place if you have like that East Coast work ethic and you're willing to work hard and just just grind. Because a lot of people in LA, it's beautiful here. You don't have to grind. Like people have nice homes. People have like a higher quality of living. So I think they're like, oh, well, we'll just go to the beach or we can like go swimming or we could go camping. There's like a lot more beautiful things like for relaxing that LA offers. But I think ultimately, like my heart is in New York for sure. Do you feel like starting in New York gives you an advantage because they're all just waiting and you're like, no, fuck you. I'm going to get in front of you. Like, I I don't have time to wait. I got to get moving. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, The great thing about New York is it just gave me this great work ethic and tons of training. You know, you mentioned like, oh, you're very comfortable on stage. I'm like, yeah, I've done so much work on stage between improv and my producing tons of my own shows in Manhattan and just performing in plays and whatever. So that I came to New York with an education from college, right? And I was like ready to work hard, but I don't think I really knew what that meant. I trained a ton. The 10,000 hours, no problem. I've got it. I've got probably 10,000 hours of voice lessons under my belt. You know, I did a lot, a lot, a lot of training. So then to come to LA with all this training and all this knowledge and all this like passion and excitement for the craft and the business, it's been serving me really, really well. And my favorite people to meet in LA are former New Yorkers because it's just like we've both been through a war. And it's like, what streets did right. you live on? <laughs> which exact one? You know what I mean? And then you got to be like, which years? Yeah, yeah, I was there those years. It's like, remember that blackout? Yes, I do. <laughs> it's like a like you're just sharing battle scars. Exactly, exactly. That's definitely the vibe whenever you meet someone from New York. You just know, because I will say this, New York is the greatest city in the world. It is. It's the greatest city in the world, but it'll chew you up and spit you out. And it'll teach you a lot. You know, I just heard you say New York is the greatest city in the world. And all I could think was Hamilton. Like, that's it. Like, my mom has got me <laughs> hooked on this show and I'm programmed. Yeah. I, I assume you've seen that show many times. I actually did get to see it once in person because when uh, Hamilton really? came out, I was working. Yes. I was working at the W Hotel right in Times Square. And I used to sell tickets for Hamilton all the time. And when it first came out, tickets were like insane, like $2,500 each because you could only go through a broker, 3000 I saw one ticket go for $20,000 for one ticket to Hamilton. Wow. Yeah. So eventually I was like, you know, I listened to the soundtrack and I loved it. I listened to it on repeat. I knew the whole thing. I used to go jogging in Central Park and listen to Hamilton. And I was resigned to never get to see it live because I was like, I can't afford it. And I played the lottery constantly, never won. I was like, okay, you know what? If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. I had one wonderful guest come in. He's actually out in LA now, Adam Pliska. He's such a kind man, but he came up to the desk and he asked us to print his Hamilton ticket. So we got a ticket master, printed it up for him. And he was like, oh, uh, Jen, right? I'm like, yes. He's like, did you, I have an extra ticket. Did you want to go? And I was like, what? Center orchestra, like third row. And I was like, what? My mind exploded. I'm like, how, how, what, why? And I was, I, I was flabbergasted. And he just said like, oh, I just like to do, you know, nice things and, you know, pay it forward. So he's like, I know you're going to make it. Because I was like, I'm an actress and I love Broadway and this is like my dream. And he just said, you know, just pay it forward. I know you're going to make it and just pay it forward when you're in my position. And it was the kindest, one of the kindest things anyone has ever done for me. It was so nice. 
Have you paid it forward yet? Or are you still waiting on that? Well, I'm waiting to be famous. But yeah, I try. Okay. <laughs> no, I do try to pay it forward, whether it's just, you know, supporting other comedians or actors or artists, like I get a lot of joy out of supporting other people's endeavors. So whether it's an improv show or whatever, that's my way at this level, that or, you know, mentoring someone if someone has questions, or they want to know about something like, I'm always about it. And that's how I can serve at this level. And, you know, once I'm a fancy, you know, celebrity, or if I come into whatever money through hopefully my artistic endeavors to be like, oh, yeah, of course, I'll help you with such and such a thing. Or yeah, why don't you be my guest? Why don't you come with me to the Academy Awards? Let's go. You know, like, I, I hope that you're able to do that. It's so funny, because so many of the standups I know and talk to, they've got a little bit of uh they're a little jaded. And they've been beaten yeah. a little bit. And that niceness, that supportive vibe, you could tell like it's there. But hang on and buy a thread like this. They're just waiting to get rid of it. Like it's so. I hope that you're able to in two or three years of actually doing this live within that scene that you're just you're still delightful. Oh, thank you. Because I don't know why I'm not jaded. I should be jaded. I've gone through so much stuff, and I'm like, wow, so resilient. Just keep on going. Well, it's it's funny. Like we we were uh, doing the mic, and I was talking afterward, and I know you play a lot of instruments. And have you seen Garfield? Fucking notes. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. Because like, uh, uh, with um, oh my gosh, now I'm not going to think of their names, but yes, I have seen them. They're so funny and so talented. It's, uh, Kate McCucci and Ricky Lindholm. Thank you. People will be like, you're like Kate McCucci. You need to be like her. Okay. Uh, well, you bring out. Uh, do you bring out a? You don't bring out a guitar. It's a ukulele or. I have a ukulele. I do play the guitar, but okay. poorly. Not great. Uh, I got my five chords. But yeah, I just I just bust out my ukulele so far if I have time or whatever. Not like I've been doing this forever. But I'll just be like, okay, well, I'll just like improvise about this thing. And that's it. I like that Jimmy let me bring my ukulele out <laughs> during the mic. Listen, I don't think he's ever going to say no. I think, it, I think it was done pretty well. <laughs> well, he said like three or four times, like, oh, man, we're supposed to have music. We're supposed to have music. And I... I didn't want to like intrude upon his mic. I was so new, but I was like, I, I mean, I'm putting it out there. I'll play if you want. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, like with these Zoom mics or shows, it's like I don't think it matters. I think as long as you have <laughs> fun and are are have a good nature about it, fuck it. Who cares? Yeah, I, I love that. It's just everyone's there to kind of lift each other up, have a good time, you know, get their jokes out, and I'm just very happy to be meeting so many cool people and just in these crazy times, you know, in a bubble surrounded by the world feels like it is literally falling to pieces. And it's been so emotional and fucking crazy. And then to be able to be like, hey, you can make a little bit of art and a little bit of light and help somebody laugh today. That's right. so special and so powerful right now. Did you pay attention to stand up growing up or uh, do you, you fall in love with anybody on stage? Growing up, um, I mean, I loved Robin Williams, of course. I mean, he's incredible. He's a genius. Um, yeah, I just, I, I was one of those kids that, you know, we watched SNL at home and I always had like an affinity for comedy and kind of like those guys growing up. I always enjoyed it and I always enjoyed storytelling and just being silly, doing silly characters. Like when I was a kid, my brother and I had a radio show, you know, we on a cassette tape, we record like our little uh, characters and stuff. I do commercial parodies. I mean, it's just in my blood, I guess, since I'm like just growing up. How many instruments can you play? You played three um, in high school, right? Yes. I played oboe, flute, and piano. And then um, when I started teaching in Manhattan, I learned the other 13. So I play 16. 
Can you recite all of them right now? Or do you have to think about it? Yes. Well, I just have to think about the order in which I learned them. So we have, okay, okay, so we have oboe, flute, and piano. And then once I moved to Manhattan, I might even play like 17 now, but I learned the slide trumpet. I don't know if you are familiar with that as a brass player, Yeah. but it's like a trumpet with the slide that has the same, um, what do you call it, positions as trombone. So it's kind of good to get the trumpet posture or uh, embouchure. Uh, I play trombone. I play euphonium. I play E-flat tuba. I play clarinet, I play alto sax, tenor sax, berry sax, I play accordion, I play guitar. Um, I got 13. Ukulele. Um, What am I missing? You got 13 plus the three from home? Oh, uh, no, I got 11. 11, yeah, I'm up to 14 now. Uh, Let's think. Well, you said guitar, right? Yes, I play guitar, so like guitar, ukulele, oboe okay yeah we could go by strings we could be like okay the only strings I play are ukulele and guitar that's it and i wish to god i could have been a better violin player but i'm not i suck at the violin um basically all the brass all the woodwinds my dad uh and, and mom they both teach music and my they went to it. they met they met at musical at music school and oh, uh we fun. had to like we had to join band. Like there was no question about it. Uh, I remember I was in like eighth grade and I was already a shitty trumpet player. And then I got braces <laughs> and I was like, I, I can't oh, no. do anything. Yeah. And my dad is like world-class trumpet player. He's very good. He's a youth symphony conductor in Binghamton has been for like almost 30 years now. And I was like such an embarrassment and uh, for many reasons, but uh, <laughs> I just, I just didn't enjoy it at all. And I remember telling him like, Hey, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be in band. He goes, he goes, Hey, uh, do you like Sprite? Yeah. And he goes, well, if you're not in band, I can't afford to buy a Sprite. I was like, I don't think that's how it works. I don't think your paycheck is deducted $10 a week because your son didn't play band. Oh, that's so funny. Um, so did you transition from trumpet? Did you transition to anything at that time? Yeah. When I was in, I was a lost cause in like sixth or seventh grade. And I went to uh, euphonium or baritone at the time. Right. And so I was, I did that for a couple of years. And then when I was in ninth grade, we needed a tuba player. So I just, again, I had the braces for a little bit in ninth grade and I just went down there and uh, I was actually pretty good. Learned how to play and I made all county four years in a row and then uh, made all state three years in a row and uh, was like in the, uh, I was a new band. So I made like a, like the second honors band in the state uh, my senior year. So like I did well, Uh, but then uh, uh, my dad's like, uh, he's like, Hey, what do you want for graduation? And do you want a tuba for graduation? And I was like, no, I, I want a baseball bat. And he goes, he goes, all right. So for graduation, he got me a tuba as like a last ditch effort. So I would, I would continue to do music in college. And then I went into journalism and broke his heart. <laughs> <Good> choice. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you could have saved 30 or $3,200, man. I told oh, you I wanted God. a bat. Oh, those tubas are so pricey. I had a, a baritone or a, uh, actually, a, oh, did I say tenor sax? Cause I also played tenor sax, but I had a tenor yeah. sax uh, in New York. And I, before I moved to LA, I was like, I think I got to sell this tenor sax. And those are pricey. Pricey, pricey. But, you know, for the stuff I was doing, eventually what started funneling down was like, oh, accordion is fun. I could do characters and sing and do like what I do is pop songs with like my Russian character. Or I can do stuff with the ukulele, which is really fun because I can sing. It's more of a group instrument. You start throwing in like 
oboe, flute, clarinet, tenor sax, and this and that. It's like, well, now I'm just becoming the orchestra for some show, which is what, <laughs> that's what would happen. You know what I mean? And then, you know, I went out for um, Sweeney Todd when John Doyle was directing, uh, when they did the tour, and they wanted me to play oboe, flute, clarinet, accordion, piano. I think that's it. And then also understudy all the female roles for this audition. And so it was like 35 or 40 pages of music. And they wanted me to have it in in like two days on all these different instruments. And it's Sondheim. I don't know if you're familiar with Sondheim, but it is oh, yeah. very tough. Music. And I was just killing myself trying to learn all these songs. And I'm like, this is so hard. But you know, they there was this trend happening. And the trend was to replace all of the orchestra with actors that could play music, that could play instruments. I tried, Mike. I tried to cash in on that trend. I, I just like wasn't quite good enough, I think, at the hundred instruments, you know? Is that just to save money? Yeah. Oh, that's I mean, awful. That could be controversial. I understand that. I feel like John Doyle had sort of like a vision, but he executed it a lot. He did Company and he did Sweeney Todd and he did several other productions where the actors became the orchestra. And ultimately, that's how I got my union card. For Actors' Equity was off-Broadway in a play called Volpone by Ben Johnson, where they had people like me who could handle classical text and like play an oboe solo and then just pick up a couple notes on the timpani and then like move a set piece and have one line and, you know, that type of stuff. Hey, you uh, just added an instrument on the timpani. Well, I mean, it was barely anything. It was just some light <laughs> drum roll. Yeah, sure. The timpani too. I try not to claim anything that I don't like actually at least think I could play a song like confidently on. One of my great, and this is how pathetic my life is, but one of my greatest achievements is that uh, we were in band in like ninth or 10th grade and the timpani player could not get the rhythm right. Just couldn't do it. And I'd never played drums before, but I would fuck around after school, you know, until my dad yelled at me. And I grabbed the mallets after school and I said, my dad came out and he was going to yell at me. I go, hey, I just want to try something. And I played the rhythm right the first time. And he goes, and I still know it. And uh, it was like, but it was like switching the drums. And my dad just walked away. He goes, yep, you got it. And he walked. He didn't tell me to not do it anymore. It's like, okay, Mike won. You're like, I got the confirmation. I'm just saying I did it. Yep. Yep. You can kick me off the drum set tomorrow, but today I ride with my timpanis. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I was I was thinking about I remember being in band and our conductor was also a trumpet player and he was teaching the brass section how to double tongue, which I was explaining to my fiance today because I do a mouth trumpet, like a fake one where I just go like oh, yeah. you know, and then I can double tongue too, like just like messing around. But it's just like the, all the complex things that go into playing a brass instrument and all of the overtones and stuff. It's, it's really pretty cool. And I don't that, claim to be a great brass player. Like you are like, you take the kick. That sound you made with the trumpet just brought back all these horrible memories of road trips <laughs> with my dad because it was like my sister is older. And like we just, we we're like teammates and uh, we'd be in the back seat and we would, it'd be like a two hour drive to his, his parents' house. And we wouldn't get out of Endicott, my town, without him bringing his mouthpiece and no. starting playing. It was like making these duck noises. And we just looked at each other like, this is going to be the longest fucking road trip ever. And it was it, it was awful. It was just terrible. And thank God he doesn't do it anymore. But my Lord, it was the worst. <laughs> That's hilarious. You're like, Dad, please, why? Why, Dad? Why? <laughs> Isn't it bad enough we came from you? You ha really have to rub it in. It's not fun. <laughs> Why are you just like torturing us? Yeah, the the old mouthpiece thing. I mean, they're so expensive. 
good mouthpieces are very pricey. So when did you start doing UCB training? I started initially at UCB in like, I want to say 2012. I kind of did a couple of classes and I did like a sketch writing class. And then I got taken away. I I came out to California actually to do a musical. Uh, So I did the Ring of Fire uh, out here in California for like uh, several months uh, up north. Played, guess what? Accordion, flute, guitar. (laughs) I learned how to play the spoons. If you give me two soup spoons, I could just play the spoons. That's really fun. Uh, But the washboard, that I had a washboard solo. Uh, And then I got back to New York and like, I, you know, I got my off-Broadway show and a bunch of other stuff. So I kind of had a very long, like four-year gap. And then I re-enrolled in 2016. So what goes into that? Like, uh, what are the classes like? Oh, they're so good and so fun. Uh, So basically, you have kind of like your first four classes. It's sort of like improv 101, 201, 301, 401. Just kind of like the basic four-class track. Then you kind of like, quote unquote, like graduate from that program. Each class is like eight weeks. And then after those four classes. Um, They've changed things around a lot. They used to have an advanced study program and they kind of morphed it recently into an academy program, which is basically like the grad school of UCB. So you can take these higher level classes, but you have to audition to get in sort of like a conservatory for a couple of years. Um, So I'm really lucky to say I auditioned, I got in, I was the very first group of people to audition on both coasts. So I was like, yeah, I'm like, do we get a sweatshirt or how do we do this? <laughs> I was so excited. So I did get to study in the academy. Um, and then they have lots of electives. They have character classes, You can, which I took a character class. You can do the sketch track. So I did sketch 101, but they have 201. They have advanced sketch, which I haven't even gone all the way up in their sketch program. Um, musical improv, which I took every single musical improv class. It's just so fun for me. I'm glad I waited till I got through all of my, what we call like straight improv. I don't know a better name, non-musical improv classes to start taking musical improv. Cause it was just, it was like, that was like coming home. I'm like, Oh, I get to sing and have a live pianist and we get to work together and I can belt as high as I want. And it's like improv too. It was very fun. Have you worked with, or did you take any classes with somebody I know anybody who's made it so far? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know. I don't think so. Not off the top of my head. I'll think about it. We'll put it in the uh, podcast notes if I'm like, this person is... (laughs) Yeah, like a week after this airs, you'll be like, oh, shit. I'll be like, oh, this person, this person, this person. But I did get to um, intern out here in LA at the Theater on Franklin, which I love. I loved working Friday nights and just getting to see like Bangarang perform. They're a really fantastic team. Just the whole Friday night lineup and, you know, just cool people. And I loved it. I have like a deep, like culty love for UCB. Did you play sports in high school or anything? No, I tried. I tried. I did. I was on like a summer swim team, summer swim team league. And I would be like, okay, this year I'm going to try to swim in high school. And usually I'd be like, oh, I got cast in a play and I have a band concert and a National Honor Society meeting or something. It always was just, I never could really get into uh, high school sports, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I remember doing baseball tryouts uh, which are fun. I mean, we, New York, we don't, our tryouts are inside, you know, it's like, like February, <laughs> early March. Cool. It's, it's, yeah, there is too much snow on the ground, but 
I remember, uh, you know, I had to leave and I hated it, but I would have to leave to go to a concert. And uh, so I, I'd bail on practice like 15 minutes early, shower and then run to the band room and get re- like throw on my tux on the way there. And oh, it's at one point I'm like, oh, I feel bad for ditching my teammates. And the other point, I don't think I've ever felt as cool in my life as being the only athlete in the band. That was always fun. You're the coolest. What uh, what did you play? What position did you play in baseball? I played first base. I'm left-handed, so I had to be part of the infield somehow. And they're like, well, we're not having you pitch. You can catch all the balls that we we throw in the dirt, and you can get those. So, you know, it was a lot of fun. That's so cool. Do you ever get to play on any leagues or anything now? Uh, I, I was playing softball when I moved back to New York for a couple of years. Then I broke my collarbone in 10 pieces. And uh, what? Yeah, I broke in 10 pieces playing softball. And then uh, I rehab. I like got surgery a month later, rehabbed for a month, then started playing again. And then I was stretching. Uh, I pl- played an entire month of the season in the fall, and I was stretching before my last game uh, or my last doubleheader. And then my uh, collarbone broke again, just popped. So I played what? that second game. Like I played that doubleheader. I had seven hits. I went seven for nine that day. Oh, wow. So I had five. I was five for five in the first game, and then two for four in the second game with a broken collarbone. So, and that was the last game I played. Oh, wow. You're like, I'm yeah. kind of afraid of just and my collarbone shattering. <laughs> yeah, it probably wasn't the smartest thing for me to do to play right after that. But the doctors were like, dude, it was going to happen anyway. You had bacteria within the, the metal plate. So it was going to break. So you just kind of helped it along. So yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I did get to play, but not anymore. I don't uh, know if I'm retired yeah. completely, but it's looking that way. You're like, how can I get a collarbone brace and just be like the most badass first baseman over there? Basically, and, and this the shitty part was like I obviously I broke it and that's horrible. But there's a pop fly between uh, first base and the catcher on the foul ground at first. I caught the ball and uh, ran into the catcher, flipped around and landed on my shoulder. So I broke the collarbone. It's just pulverized. But the worst part was like uh, we were down eight nothing at that point in the first inning, and uh, I went to the hospital. And the final score was like twenty nine to four. <gasps> so I broke it for nothing. Uh, and I was like, well, this is completely worthless. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. What was that rehab like? What can you like rehab? No, well, basically, uh, so I, and I, you know, I still blame it. It was like two years ago. I still say that's why I'm out of shape, but uh, <laughs> I was getting in pretty good shape at that point. And then I, I, I think I'd lost like 14 pounds and then broke it. And then I just, cause they were like, don't do anything. Like don't pick anything up with your right hand uh, and just don't do a thing. So uh, I was living with my ex-girlfriend, I think at the point, and uh, that wasn't easy because it was like, uh-huh. she'd yell at me that I was too lazy. And if I picked up something else, she'd say, you can't do that. So I'm like, well, what do you want to do? So, uh, but basically uh, the way I healed it was by not doing a thing. So now <laughs> I'm good. Like it's, they, they put two, I have two brackets uh, on my collarbone. I can do whatever I want now, I think, but I'm never going to be completely confident with my right hand to, to pick anything up. So it gives me an excuse to be lazy. Hey, you know what? Not everybody has that. That's a gift. I know. And you're like, I would get those groceries, but you know, my collarbone, so I shouldn't. Yeah. And, my, and for a while, like my dad uh, would ask for help and I'm like, well, I, I can't lift anything. He goes, oh, that's right. So like there was like a year where I didn't have to help him with a thing. And now he's like, hey man, I'll buy you lunch, but you got to come over and paint the house with me. And I'm like, ah, damn it. <laughs> but no, I, I was wondering about the sports, like, because you did mention that, that being an improv was being on a team. Like, yeah. have you ever had that experience before with doing anything? Like besides improv or like plays? No. And I mean, I was on a swim team 
but it's really more of like, you know, an individual sport yeah. where you're just like beating that best record. Yeah. I, I begged my parents to let me play soccer when I was, you know, 11 or something. I really, really wanted to play. And they were so worried that I was going to get injured. They told me no, even though all my friends in the neighborhood were playing, it was like AYSO or whatever soccer. Yeah. They're like, we, we just don't want you to break your knees and all this stuff. And then my sister comes along and they let her do every sport. She was in volleyball. She was in track. She was in basketball. She did She did soccer. She did it all. And she was so fit. I mean, she loved sports anyway, growing up. I mean, I don't know. She would have fun doing Jane Fonda workout tapes and push-ups. She'd be like, do you want to do a workout tape? I'd be like, no, I'm going to go learn a monologue. But um, <laughs> she is an amazing athlete. Now she's like more into like uh, yoga and uh, mindfulness and all this other stuff. But yeah, when she was going through school, every sport plus swim team, she was an amazing little athlete. And I was like, did you guys just know that I was awkward and I would just suck at sports? You're just trying to like trying to save me from that embarrassment of just not being good. I'll take it. Yeah, it's like, mom, could I play soccer? Well, you look more like an oboe player. Exactly. Are you sure you don't want to be in band or just, you know, German National Honor Society, something safe away from danger? You look very socially awkward, and we're going to prevent you from making a fool out of yourself. Exactly. We're going to put you with your people over here with the musicians. <laughs> so what are your plans? I mean, uh, let's say everything opens up. Are you going to put more time into doing stand-up than improv or acting, or are you going to do all three? I mean, I'm going to do all three. But my dream, I mean, I just don't know what's going to happen with improv, if our theater is going to open, when it's going to open. You know, I kind of finished all of my class through UCB. I kind of reached as much as I can do there mostly. So next steps there, like I would really hope to be in a main stage musical show. There's talks of that being developed. And I would, I mean, I would love to do that. That would be amazing. So that's my hope for UCB. I can't even say what will happen. We don't know anything. But um, yeah, my plan is really just to, I love producing shows. I love performing. So yeah, just more stand up, getting out, meeting people, doing the mics. Like I can't wait to like go to the Laugh Factory and do an open mic there, do an open mic at, you know, all these different amazing clubs here that I've never even been to. It's going to be awesome. And the big clubs and the little clubs and everything in between. And my goal, because I'm a crazy person, I always make lots of goals, uh, is to have one hour of material by the end of the year. Wow. That's ambitious. I'll tell you what, that's definitely is ambitious. Why not try? You know, I figure like, why not do a ton of mics right every day? It's not going to be a perfect hour. You know, I know when Seinfeld, you know, writes, he writes and writes and rewrites, and it takes him a a long time to put something together because it's so tight and so well done. But I was like, why not? And even if I decide to do a one hour, like, let's say I do a one hour holiday show in December, I would allow myself at that point in time, if I had a tremendous amount of stamps up, like let's say at least half an hour, 45 minutes, I would allow myself to add in maybe some instruments or make it a slightly more variety, but like predominantly stand up. I think I could pull that off. Just I love Christmas. I do. I really do. You could talk about how much you love Christmas for about 15 minutes and fill out the hour. Exactly. Thank you. I have a problem. I'm like, it's Christmas. Yeah. No, I think it's, I think it's super important to have goals with that. I know when I started, 
You know, I, I wanted to, I just wanted to get booked and then I wanted to headline a show. And like I had these, I, I wanted to get booked by this certain person or, you know, that club or that town. And I think that for me was very instrumental on me actually working hard. And like, I needed something to shoot for. Yes. I mean, that's just the deal. And like in the pandemic, the only thing I can really control is what I do. So I'm like, okay, well, I've made a commitment to write every single day. And I'm going to commit to five mics a week. And I'm going to commit to X, Y, and Z. These are all things in my control that I can achieve. I don't know what's going to be open when, but I can do my own thing and be ready for when things open up. Like, obviously, of course, you know, acting and shooting stuff and being, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, I'll be booking, you know, more commercials and just looking to get like a manager out here that believes in me who's like, uh, yes, of course, we're going to put you up for these television roles and continue writing, force myself to like put my pilot on Zoom, you know, just like have a Zoom reading. There's stuff we can control that's just, why not? Well, that's, I get frustrated even now, like we're six months into this and, you know, I get, I get really frustrated by people saying, well, there's nothing to do. You know, I haven't, I haven't been writing because there's no shows. It's like, well, yeah, but like there are Zoom mics, there are Zoom shows. Uh, I'm right along the Pennsylvania border. So like there are shows in Pennsylvania. I've, I put on a couple shows during the pandemic. It's like you could always be working on something. Totally. And the, the interesting thing about writing with nowhere to put it even, if it just keeps you sharp. It just keeps you in the mentality right. of like, oh, the funny thing. I'm going to write about that. Maybe my jokes from six months ago or seven months ago are like about being a waiter. I'm not a waiter anymore, but it doesn't matter. I could still use those jokes if I wanted to. Yeah, exactly. Now, if you had if you had the opportunity to get a part on a Broadway musical or a TV show, what would you choose? Well, first I would shoot myself. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, I would... Um, <laughs> I'd be like, why now? Honestly, if I had the chance to be in a pilot, I would probably choose the pilot because that has a longevity about it where interestingly, getting some kind of recognition or notoriety from being on television actually brings in more Broadway opportunities. So I would probably go for television. Also, I'm based out of here, but my real dream is that those would kind of complement each other. And I'd be like, oh, NBC's Jen Eden is coming to, you know, City Center for 16 weeks and this amazing show, blah, 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 blah. Like that in my mind is like the bit that would be incredible. I love it. Well, not to go right back to Breaking Bad, but it's like Brian Cranston is obviously yeah. he's done he's done everything. I think I think he's probably the greatest him or Tom Hanks in my mind uh, are the greatest actors going and yeah. he's he can do TV, movies or Broadway plays. You know, the dude is so talented. He and is so if you can find if yeah, if you, if you can find a way to get in that way, maybe maybe you should call Brian. Yeah. Do you know him? I mean, he filmed in New Mexico, so I feel like we'll have some mutuals. Right, right. That's it. Like, you just got to find Aaron Paul and you'll be fine. I'll be like, hey, hey, friend, what's the deal? (laughs) (laughs) Can you mentor me or like, what's going on? No, I think he's so talented. I really, I just really am in awe of people like that. And all I know is just keep, keep doing the work. And if it feels good, and for me, if I love it and it feels good to work and I love putting up work and I love writing, creating, collaborating, you know, supporting people. That feels really good to me. I don't need someone up here to be like, oh, now you're good because we gave you a job. It'll come when it comes. I know all I have to do is just keep doing good stuff. And that feels good for now. I mean, you've got that uh, Pretty Funny Woman show. Do you feel like you've got a lot of pride in, in helping to elevate the women around around you, like kind of expose them to what you're doing? Yeah, totally. Um, I feel really grateful during this pandemic to be in a community with just 
hilarious, amazing women. And it's definitely, you know, one of those things as a comedian, whether it's improv or or in uh, stand-up, there's just not a lot of female presence. So it's awesome to be able to lift up other female voices, whether it's, you know, performing like the I have, was able to headline my first show last night with some gals that I met through Pretty Funny Women. My friend, my dear friend, Mary Ellen George, who she decided, okay, I'm going to make my own comedy production sort of banner called Bits and Pieces. So she, I've been able to participate in two of her shows. And the first one, we did all of our classmates and we were like, took a donation, whoever wanted to like on donation base only. And we gave all the money to Midnight Mission, which is a homeless shelter in Los Angeles. So that felt really good. Cause it's like, oh, we're making people laugh. We're bringing women together. We're able to like do some charity. So that felt really good. And I think it's important work and not, not, I don't ever want to get into a niche where I'm only working with women as much as I love working with women, because like, there are lots of brilliant, wonderful comedians out there. And so it's cool to be like, yes, I'm passionate about this, but I'm just passionate about good people and good comedy. I produce women's shows and they're fun. And I think they're some of my favorite to produce because, you know, I, I don't know how, how many times they get to work with other women and only almost exclusively. So I, I like creating the networking opportunities. So I think that's that's a really cool benefit. Also, the crowds I usually get for the women's shows are so much better because they're predominantly women who I believe listen better mm. and are in for the show. Like they're they're into what they're saying. You know, they probably go to comedy shows where it's four men and a woman. Yeah. Now it's five women and no men. And holy shit, do they not want to see a man? <laughs> You're like, I'm an ally. I put up the show, guys. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Like, I'll, I'll go on stage and, and I'll introduce the host of the show. And I'm like, hey, you know, I'm Mike. And this is the last time you're going to see me tonight. And they applaud. And they <laughs> applaud. I'm like, oh, my God. Am I at home again? This is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to leave. Good. Get the hell out of here. You're like, OK, OK. Enjoy. Enjoy. Have you uh, I mean, maybe this is probably unfair to ask about stand-up, but do you have a worst set in mind, a worst show you've ever been? You could so improv, you could do Broadway or, you know, musicals, anything. Um, I would say when I first did a couple of those open mics, I did a, a mic at the fourth wall and I feel like it was sort of like I was the only woman. It was all men. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I kind of got up there and I was just like, uh, I think it was just so terrifying to not have the confidence of having just any experience in standup. And it was really scary. And I had a couple friends actually show up to support me just because I have amazing friends. And I had to remember like now if I'm confident and I tell a story that's not hilarious, but if it's like kind of entertaining, nobody's going to be like, boo, that was awful. Those be like, oh, she's, yeah, yeah. Okay, she's kind of quirky and kind of funny and told these stories. Like, that was fine. Uh, so that was tough for me because I'm used to having super highly polished stuff that does really, really well. So that was a little tough. And I guess <laughs> when I was on tour with The Little Mermaid, I just completely dissolved into a fit of laughter, like in front of an audience. <laughs> And that was, uh, was bad, very unprofessional. We were probably in the middle of nowhere performing this show. I played the sea witch in this off-brand Little Mermaid show. I was supposed to be hiding behind like a picture, quote unquote, you know, like my face was there, but I was like in a, yeah. a statue or something like that. And I don't know, one of my one of my castmates made me laugh so hard. I crumbled behind this like fake little cutout statue and it was so unprofessional. I don't know how much of the audience was really aware because my castmates are like, Sea Witch, Sea Witch, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm feeling sick. Mm. <laughs> it was 
bad. So how do you recover from that? Well, we just all sort of just kept rolling. You know what I mean? It was just like, I had to be like, oh, I'm feeling so sick. <clears throat> I don't know. I had to control my laughter and like improvise. Honestly, got me right out of that. So like, I, now, you said this is a Little Mermaid or a, yeah. a knockoff? So this is like an off-brand Little Mermaid tour that I did. Okay. So like maybe maybe they didn't know exactly the script. So maybe exactly. you could play it off that way. Yeah, exactly. Because okay. in this version, the sea witch's name is Wandella. She has a big curly red wig. I was taken around in a, a rickshaw that was like a giant shell. And I had a whip that was made out of like a long ribbon. So I would just have like a giant lobster that would like carry me around stage. And I used to whip him and I'd just be like, sea creature, give me 10 push-ups, or else I'm going to choke a baby. I don't know. I got very bad. I was very naughty because I knew I had some <laughs> I make stuff up. So really, like the only way they would really bust you is if they toured along with you watching. Like, oh, yeah, she didn't I, she didn't get sick in that scene. Exactly. Like, and our director was like gone. You know what I mean? So it was like we we rehearsed actually in Philly for a month. So we rehearsed the show, put it up and got it ready to go in Philly. And then we went on tour and it was just like five or six actors in like a big van. We had one guy on tech and a stage manager, and that was it. And that was it. And we went to like 38 states. We were doing like a show a day. It was crazy. So now are you in LA for good, you think? No way. I want to be back in New York all the time. I love New York. My dream is to be bi-coastal for sure. That would be like the big, big dream to be able to go back to New York where it's either like, hey, we want you to come back for Broadway for a while, or we want you to come back and host SNL and do this thing for a little while. And then maybe you'll you know, whatever, what's shooting in, in New York? I'll be on it. Let's do it. Or I'm shooting my own. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that would be the dream just to be able to go back there. Um, I think it's an Amy Poehler's book where she taught, or maybe Tina Fey. I don't know. I shouldn't confuse the two because they're totally unique and beautiful women, but both women who I admire in comedy, maybe it was Tina Fey. It's talking about like people should live in New York when they have a lot of money and they should experience living in New York when you have not a lot of money. I did the no money thing in New York. I did it to death. I don't want to go back to New York and be broke, like working a side job. Like I just want to be able to be like, oh yeah, I did the hard grind. Now it's okay to like make money and perform and stuff like that. I don't want four roommates. Yeah. Like, that's, that's the biggest thing for me. I live alone. I mean, you can see one of my cat's tails right now, <laughs> but you know, I've got three cats and I'm okay with adding one more person you're like, or three more cats, <laughs> but but not a, a group of feral humans. I don't want that. No, 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 no. Yeah, I, I mean, I was lucky. I never had more than two roommates, but I did, like I said, I had been renting out the extra room on Airbnb, which was, it's stressful and it's just a lot. In in LA, you can afford to live alone. It's not like cheap, but you can, it can be done. It can be done. Much easier than New York City. And you met your fiance in LA, right? Yes, I met my fiance in LA. I was having a lot of trouble. I was trying to date in New York. It was really hard. I met so many crazy guys that were just not for me. Um, I accidentally dated a fascist when I lived in New York. It was terrible because I didn't know for like three months. Six months. So how do you not know? Like, were, were the the swastikas, like, he didn't bring those out until like the, the ninth date? Exactly. He was giving me Heil fives, but I thought it was just, I thought he was being cute. I didn't know. <laughs> but no, he, he was just this really sweet, timid, like musician guy. And after like not very long of us dating, maybe like a couple of months, he got really, really ill. So he was on all of these drugs and we just like stopped getting to know each other. He was on Dilaudid, which is like, basically heroin. I don't know. He was not in his right mind because he was in so much pain. 
And then once he got his surgery and got off of his drugs, I'm like, oh, we never really talked political views. Like, what are your political views? And he was like, oh, I'm a fascist. Wait a minute. So he was out. He was open with I'm a fascist. Yeah. And I was like, like a socialist or I was like, what do you what do you mean? He's like, no, like think like 1940s Germany fascist. And I was like, my world was like cracking from the inside out. I'm like, do you mean do you mean I like couldn't understand. He's like, yeah, like Hitler had some pretty good ideas. <laughs> no. That's a first date thing. Get that out on the first date and so, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Of course I get that out on the first date now. Like when I met Anthony's my fiance, when we had our first date, I was so busy too. I was packed my days really full. So we met on, on Bumble, you know, the, the female friendly app. And yeah. he had a, a picture of him between two cacti. And I was like, oh, this is, this guy seems cute and quirky. He's not trying to be sporting a gun or be bottle feeding a leopard or something. And uh, (laughs) those were always my signs in New York. I'd be like, what are they doing? I I swear I have somewhere in my phone an album filled with screenshots of guys that I swiped left on because I was like, how is this your profile photo? Why? So you didn't find that charming? Like maybe a maybe a dead alligator, something like that, draped across somebody's neck. You're like, like you didn't find that cute? Oh, I it was really hard for me to swipe left, but I was like, can't do it. No. No, it was just it was the worst. The worst. I mean, the guy, the the quote unquote conventionally handsome guy bottle feeding a tiger, I'm like, what do you want? What are you trying to get from right, me? Right, right. You're an evil manipulator and I don't like you. But yeah, I definitely was trying not to be jaded. I was like, okay, be open to love, be open to love. Uh, And so I used to just schedule dates in kind of like appointments. I tried to get too emotionally involved beforehand. So I, uh, we met online and I thought he was cute. It was like a quick exchange. He's like, oh, I like to take you out. I'm like, okay, sure. I have availability in 10 days between 2.30 and 3.30 PM uh, in Hollywood. (laughs) Sounds romantic. He was like, oh, okay. I'm like, and if you could meet me at Eat This Cafe, because that's between my two rehearsals, that would be ideal. Uh, And he's so sweet. He's like, okay, yeah, I'll be there. And he did. He showed up, but we didn't confirm, right? So we met online and then the conversation stopped because I was like, oh, I have a friend in town from New York and blah, blah, blah. Anthony was in his mind, like respecting me and like giving me space to like, and like trying not to be needy. But when I realized it on the day of the day, I'm like between an improv practice and some other appointment, I'm like changing into a cute shirt for our like lunch date. And I'm like, he didn't confirm with me. I didn't reconfirm with him. I'm like, he's not coming. There's no way he's coming to meet me for this one hour date. I was like, you idiot, Jen, you could have been doing work right now. So then I like, I messaged him on Bumble just like, Hey, uh, are we still on for today? Didn't hear anything. I was like, well, that's over. He's not coming. I already started beating myself up, went in, ordered a salad, resigned to die alone, sit down at the table, start eating. And he walks in still 15 minutes early for the date, mind you. And he's like, Hey, I just saw your message. Um, I didn't want to come in too early, but I was here. And I'm like, hi, I'm so sorry. And, and then we're both kind of people pleasers. So we just kind of apologize to each other for five minutes. And then that was the beginning. So what audition were you going to after the date? So, uh, no, actually, I had a musical improv practice, of course. I was okay. uh, in a group called The Music Store, where we all play our own instruments and we improvise full musicals together. You improvise entire musicals? Mm-hmm. How does that work? So, like, uh, Paul was Paul Green. He's also a stand-up, actually. He's very talented. Paul would be uh, on the keys, and he also played, like, ukulele, and he also played guitar, and I would play, like, accordion and ukulele and piano, and we had other people that had different strengths and different instruments. So it was like the cross section of like jam band 
and like musical orchestra. And we all understood musical improv. So one person usually take the lead on the keys. And then everyone else would kind of like noodle around and kind of try to blend in with whatever was going on on the keyboard. And then we would just improvise whole shows. That's incredible. It was so fun. I really, really miss it. I miss it so much. So many talented people I worked with in that group. And we actually got to perform for 9,000 students once uh, in Texas at the like Texas Thespian Convention. There were all these high school kids. And I've never performed for a crowd that large. It was crazy. Were you improving the entire time there too? Yeah. Holy shit. I can't imagine that. It was I have fun. I have nightmares. Like a couple days ago, I dreamt that I was I was opening for uh Mark Norman and Joe List and I completely forgot about everything I was gonna do and bailed on it. <laughs> I can't imagine going into a sea of nine thousand college students or high school students and winging it, basically. Yeah, we were. Like all we do is get up there and be like, okay. Uh, we're the music store and all we need is like the title of like a musical you've never seen and that's it. And then they would give us a title and then we just start the show. Wow. I'm trying to think of the name of it. It was something like a parody of Shawshank Redemption somehow. I don't know. It was like very silly. (laughs) How long did it take Anthony to go see you perform? Oh gosh, not long. I think we, I think after four dates, probably I had a music store show. And he came and showed up and he's like the most loyal, you know, boyfriend slash fiance. He come any show he's available for, he's just there. Anytime I perform at UCB, if he was off work, he was at the show, like no matter what. He's the kind of boyfriend that's like, let me carry your accordion. I'll carry this. I'll carry all the bags and you just go ahead and your little dress and high heels and get ready. And I'm like, thanks. <laughs> I think you just found a roadie. I did. He's perfect for that. He's he's so <laughs> like we're complete opposites. I thought we were kind of the same. And then as the pandemic comes, I'm like, oh, we're actually really different. Like he enjoys spaciousness and free time and like peace. And I like being busy and being productive and creating stuff and like working. And I get really enthusiastic and excited to like be around people. And he's just like, I prefer to like listen to a podcast or read a book. So in quarantine, I'll be like, you know, in the room on like 300, you know, open mics or Zoom calls or classes or performances or whatever, writing groups. And he's, he'll just be like, I made you a keto dinner. Here you go. Or, you know, tea. Or <laughs> he'll help me with my self tape setup. Or, you know, he's very, very supportive. I couldn't ask for somebody that would support me more. And like, it can't be easy. Although he's just like, it's fine. I'm like, are you sure? He's like, it's great. Hey, as long as he says it's fine, go with it. You know, it's ride it until it's not. Right? Because like if he goes, well, if it's not me, like who could actually, who would be the ideal? And I'm like, you got me there. Like he really, I can't imagine, you know, in the past, I've just been like, I could never be with anyone because I just don't think I can manage career and relationship together. It's too hard. I just can't do it because the career, the passion is so strong and it's such a strong drive. But then when I'm in a relationship, I'm like, oh, I want to give everything to this relationship. Something always winds up suffering. So yeah, before I met my fiance, I was just sort of like, okay, this would have to be a different one than I've ever had before. Like way different. No Nazis first date. I'm like, are you into Hitler? What's your deal? Who did you like, nah, but I was really a big fan of Pol Pot. You know, is that, is that going to be an issue? Like one of his arguments was like, Hitler wasn't even that bad. He's like Stalin. Actually. <laughs> I was like, how? How are we having this conversation right now? Hitler wasn't even that bad. He said that. And then when we broke up, 
my friends are like, what happened? My Jewish friends, I was like, oh, it just didn't work out because I felt so horrible to have been dating yeah. a fascist. I couldn't tell. It's like a, it's like a, you know, back in the fifties when people were blacklisted for going to like this communist club, this gathering. Like if you told you, if you told your Jewish friends, yeah, I was dating a Nazi for a little bit, you'd never be allowed in their club. No, 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 no. But it was very funny because I am so like. I have so many friends that are Jewish and I identify with them. I just, my mind was blown. Like if you look at the back of my door in my bedroom in New York, I had like a Jewish Holocaust museum, like tote bag, you know, hanging there. My boss at the time was like a Jewish, very talented performer. I worked for her for a long time and she was like very into that scene. I like, I like helped her put Seder dinners together. And like, I was like very part of that. She goes, you should get on J date and just tell them you work for me. You know, you're practically, part of the family. And so for this guy to say this stuff to me, I'm like, do you hate Jewish people? He's like, no, not at all. I just, I like Hitler's economics. Like I think he- Oh yeah, yeah. It's it's really going to benefit you now in like 2012. Right. that he thought that um he goes well do you know he goes hitler solved unemployment and i was so mad i go yeah that's because everybody had jobs on the oven and everyone else was burning to death so right and you know how many jobs were created because of hitler about six million at least at least I couldn't believe it. My mind was just, and I know that I don't think he was really truly, I don't think he had a lot of hatred, but I think he was just confused and thought like he didn't really agree with any of the politics that were going on in present day. So he was like, oh, this, this interesting, uh, you know, financial plan that Hitler had with Germany after World War One, he really brought them to prosperity. I'm like, yes, I know that Germany was going through a tough time after World War One, and like nationalism was down and people were sad and they didn't have a lot of pride for Germany and he brought that back. But he was a dictator and a murderer. So... No. Yeah, like okay, yeah. You know, his his economy was great because it was all funded by gold fillings and watches. <laughs> you know, like he had the market cornered on those, sure. Like, like, <laughs> That's so horrible. I mean, like my heart broke in like eight thousand pieces. It was so it was like, what? Like people, when he was sick, I was with him when he was sick for like four or five months. Just really, really, really. Oh, man. And people be like, oh, is that your husband? I'm like, oh, no, we're just dating. We did not know each other that well, but I just went into like wife mode. I'm like, oh, I'll just, you know, we'll just ride this out and, and get to know each other on the other side. Little did I know. I just, you know, this is the kind of humor I have. I hope that you get married and your wedding night, Anthony just looks over and be like, no, no Hitler really wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> now you're going to know what my nightmares are going to be made of. Just that. <laughs> like, I've been waiting for the other shoe to drop for two years. I'm like, yeah, but Hitler, right? Or like, are you in defeat? What's the thing? And he's like, no, I'm not. I'm just, I'm. this is just me. I'm like, okay. All right. What would you rather have, a Hitler obsession or feet obsession? Feet obsession, for sure. Because like, okay, okay. That- I'm not crazy about. I've had my experiences with that. It's not for me. But like, I even told Anthony before we had sex, I was like, do you do? He's like, what? I'm like, don't, uh, don't be in defeat. It's like, what? I'm like, could you not be in defeat? It would be so awesome if you were just not in defeat. He goes, I think feet are so gross and disgusting. And I was like, yes. And that's how you have your soulmate. Exactly. I was like, yes, I'll be your girlfriend. Whatever you want. Yes. Let's, let's go. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, I, I appreciate you doing the show. Uh, it's good talking to you. Uh, do you have anything to plug uh, social media wise? Oh my gosh, yes. Okay, so on social media, I am Jen Eden 777. Kind of like you won the lottery, triple seven. 
I have a little show I just started called Jen's Funny Female Friends, where I do kind of like a Zoom interview with female comedians I admire. And we just get to hear from them. And that's kind of my new thing or little jokes of the day. Or as I'm getting like little sets on tape, you'll see my comedy start to kind of come to life. That's where I'm at. Well, again, thank you so much. It was so much fun. And I uh, hope I continue to see you at the mics and everything. I think you're going yes. to do big things. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And this just made my day. It was so much fun. And I'm glad we got to meet because you're a very talented comedian. I love hearing about all the shows and all the stuff you're producing and, you know, all good things. I hope you come to LA to visit. I think you will like it. I also too. And I just want you to know that this episode is just going to be that 10 second clip of you complimenting me all the way through. It's just going to be a loop. (laughs) It's just a loop of that for 90 minutes. Yeah, that's it. I'm fine with it. <laughs> I can hurt. Just so you know, you have my consent. You could just do the, the compliment reel for 90 minutes and that's it. Awesome. Hey, again, thank you so much. And I'll talk to you in a bit. Okay. Thanks. Wings off Peeling back my sunburnt skin. Oh, wait outside your bedroom. I, I hope.